You're listening to The Profile. Hello and welcome to The Profile podcast. I'm Andy Peck. For the past 17 years, I've been interviewing leaders in the church and the wider culture. In the coming weeks, you'll be hearing the best of these conversations, plus some brand new ones as well. It was leadership expert John Maxwell who famously said, leadership is influence. Some have massive influence through their role as a leader of a church or business, a charity or a family. Others have influence in their neighbourhood, a network of friends or through leisure interests. It's our prayer that these conversations will help you in whatever spheres you have influence. This show is brought to you by Premier Christianity magazine, the UK's leading Christian magazine. Get full online access and the print magazine every month by becoming a subscriber. See special offers available now at premierchristianity.com. The recent earthquake on the Syria and Turkey border that to date has killed an estimated 42,000 has caused many inside and outside the church to ask the question, how can a God of love allow natural disasters? We may be familiar with the answer to the question, why does God allow suffering? Because we can answer that often suffering is caused by ourselves and those around us. But what of natural disasters and disease? How do we explain how a God of love allows so many thousands to perish in the many disasters that occur around the world in any given year? Not just the latest earthquake, but disasters caused by famine and disease, including, of course, COVID-19. Well, I'm delighted to say that today's guest has written a book on this very topic. Broken Planet. If there's a God, then why are there natural disasters and diseases? Her name is Sharon Dirks. Originally from a scientific background, she has a PhD in brain imaging from the University of Cambridge and has held research positions at the University of Oxford in the UK and the Medical College of Wisconsin in the USA. So lovely to uh, welcome you to the Leadership Show. Uh, Sharon, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Andy. Very much looking forward to your reflections on this key topic, because as a uh, as a, an occasional preacher, it's it's a tough one to to deal with, and uh, I'm sure many are fascinated by your approach to this. Um, but before we, we we look at the topic, you're you're well known as someone who's been engaged in scientific debate as a Christian, and indeed have been a a, a plenary speaker at the Premier Unbelievable Conference. What was your journey into this kind of work? Well, I started out in brain imaging, as you um, mentioned already, um, and in a, I was doing a postdoc in the US uh, in brain imaging, and I suddenly found myself being asked all of these, uh, all kinds of questions about the Christian faith. And, and so alongside the brain imaging research, I was beginning to kind of operate as an evangelist and as an apologist and, and decided that actually this was something that I was growing in, in passion about and I began to seek God for what was next and what that led us to was a move back to the UK where I studied evangelism and apologetics at Wycliffe Hall in what was Ocker's kind of first formal year of teaching um, 2004. That led me to continue in that area, although I did return to brain imaging for a, a short while um, and then joined the team at Ocker in 2009. And I guess I have been passionate. Part of my own journey to faith was asking difficult questions of Christians and, and that if something is true, then it you know, the faith that we have will hold if we, even if we ask the most difficult questions. 
And so I have had a passion and a heart for trying to respond to the very most difficult questions that people do ask, one of which is obviously this topic, natural disasters. And how did the book come about specifically? Well, the book came about um, by thinking, okay, well, I I had written an earlier book um, called Why, which looks more generally at the question of suffering and gives a kind of, if you like, a free will defence in there and um, responding to lots of other questions, also weaving with stories. Um, But I did realise after that that there was more that could be said on the subject of natural evil, of natural disasters. And so I wanted to write something that was in a similar style to why, but specifically looking at all of the different kinds of natural disasters, because we we often just lump them in one group, but there are so many different kinds. An earthquake is very different from a tsunami, which is very different from a hurricane, which is different from a pandemic and a, a locust infestation and so on, and or wildfires. And so I wanted to look at each individual natural, well, many of the natural disasters. I didn't cover all of them comprehensively but certainly look at the, the waterfront of the main the main kinds. Yeah, and, and put it in book form in a way that's accessible to seekers as well, that this is a book without jargon, but that hopefully unpacks the Christian faith in a clear, um, in a clear way. Yeah, certainly recent years have been a, a massive challenge to, to people in the apologetics field. We've had you know, COVID-19, we had the wildfires, as you say, uh, there've been other disasters around, and um, and and it's rocked the faith of many because, um, I guess, could, partly because in the West we we are a little bit shielded from all this kind of stuff, um, particularly COVID nineteen. Of course, um, suddenly we're facing what actually the two thirds world have been facing <laughs> for for generations, uh, and 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 some people are saying, "Well, hang on, where is God? Because he he didn't heal my friend, uh, who's mm. who's now passed away." So yeah. Um, so, I mean, Turkey and Syria are very much in the news as we speak, but you say in the book there are half a million earthquakes every year, 100,000 strong enough to be felt and a, a very small number leading to a loss of life. So that's one of the things you say, isn't it, in, within the book about giving some perspective to what we regard as as, as out-of-the-blue events. Yes, absolutely. And um, behind that... Um, uh, sitting the point, you know, people often ask, couldn't God have made a better world, uh, one in which there weren't earthquakes and tectonic plate activity and so on? But of course, um, as we begin to dig into that, we we realise that the notion of a better world isn't as straightforward as we might um, think, because if we take tectonic activity, that is actually something that is used to recycle um, nutrients from deep within the earth back to the surface, that the movement of plates against one another. And those nutrients are then expunged through volcanoes, through volcanic activity. We know that the soil, you know, in a volcanic area is incredibly fertile. People, That's why people often build um, around volcanoes and grow crops there because the, the soil is amazing. Um, similarly, even flooding kind of has a role in bringing nutrients to to the the local area um, through through the um, through the water, um, and and so the, the the notion of a a better world is 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 not a straightforward one because a lot of the natural forces involved in these kinds of events also have a role in 
sustaining life on earth and also in creating great beauty we we could look at um, you know mountain ranges which are themselves formed uh, by the riding up of tectonic plates so against each other and those mountain ranges have also a role in the hydrological cycle of bringing causing water to rise higher and higher and then letting it fall through streams and into rivers that supply vast areas with water and so we, as we begin to dig beneath the surface of this question we realize that um, creating a better world isn't as straightforward as it might seem we th these these um cataclysmic events seem to have these dual roles that they're involved in they're involved in generating and sustaining life but also sometimes humans seem to be caught up in them and there is great suffering yes it, some of these questions come up against the nature of reality itself that if if we have gravity then i can drop something on my toe you know, is kind of suffering is almost kind of inevitable in the sense that 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 you know, without God involved involving himself in every detail of every person's activity, there's going to be something that's going to be unpleasant for the nature, and then that's how we learn to grow. I I learn about gravity by not dropping stuff on my toe. You know, kind of. Um, you know, it, it, we, we we eventually philosophically you come up with these kind of questions yeah. that there's really no answer to i suppose don't we well and in response to the you know why can't god simply intervene all mm. the time you know richard swinburne um makes the point that the natural laws uh, are there in a way to enable our free will to be genuine you know mm. i have a glass of water sitting on the table next to me but it, it requires the kind of movement of my hand to be able to consistently mm kind of pick up the glass and to grab for gravity, as you say, to allow that water to tip through the glass into my mouth. If the if suddenly the glass flew off the table in front of me and the laws of nature were different than they were previously, then I am not in a position to exercise my free will in quite the same way because I'm the, the laws of nature are all over the place. So this is perhaps an extreme example, example, but to make the point that there's a reason that there's a stability that's built into the natural world. And part of that reason is that it does enable us to be free and volitional beings working within that world. And your book, you underline that the very question we're considering which implicates God apparently, presumes that there is a God who's involved. <laughs> and of course, atheists do not properly pose the question and have no solace from God. And I guess that's one of the ways that you might respond to a question like uh, about natural disasters and about suffering. Yes, and I, I think that, um, and I know, I, I know that um, we come on to Stephen, you, know, you mentioned Stephen Fry as well. Um, I think that often when when we, uh, ask uh, you know why and um, I think if we ask if we ask the question well what responses are available to us if God does not exist um, how do we make sense of natural disasters if God does not exist well if he doesn't exist then we are left 
looking at scientific explanations that, mm. you know, viruses are just very good at replicating. They're bits of DNA um, that are very good at making copies of themselves. In fact, um, the world is full of viruses, um, and actually um, the majority of them are vital to life. If you were to get rid of all the viruses on Earth, um, uh, we wouldn't live very long. Um, mm. We actually need them. Um, and similarly, um, you know, uh, the forces of nature kind of do do what they do. Um, d- mutations happen by by chance alone. We could look at cause and effect. We can look at tectonic activity, and those are all really helpful, really elegant explanations of and dis- descriptions of the natural world. But they don't help us deal with the the rawness that comes behind the question, why is this happening? Why do these people have to suffer so horrifically? Why must 42,000 people die in an earthquake? When we ask that kind of question, we reach the limits of what science can tell us, really. And we actually are saying there's something wrong with the world. We're not we're not content to simply say this is just the way the world is. This is just the way the laws of nature work. We're acknowledging that there's something wrong with the world. In fact, our natural response is to object, to, to rail against things. Well, how do we make sense of that? Because that's kind of like a moral judgment that things are not right. How do we make sense of that? Is it that we live in a godless universe in which moral a moral awareness has simply arisen by chance as a bit of an anomaly? Or is it that we live in a universe that has been moral right from the beginning because it's been made by a good God, but that somehow along the way has gone wrong, giving rise to brokenness and, and evil? Mm. And actually, we can say that when we get angry at suffering, that's actually a pointer towards God rather than away from him, because we're not simply saying this is just the way the world is. We're saying, no, there's something not right with the world. Yes, I I mentioned in my questions to uh, Stephen Fry's famous rant, which is, I think, millions of people on YouTube have have seen him. And I, I guess he's expressing, you know, for many, the, the, the sadness of and the pain of, of, of how life is and he's saying oh, i can't believe in god because because he lets this happen if he was good which is the classic of course if god's good you know, why is he allowed suffering um but of course he's express you know though he's expressing what many atheists feel he doesn't he hasn't doesn't doesn't sadly have any answer does he well i think that at the heart of, of stephen fry's response it kind of illustrates that the point in a sense that I w- was mentioning that that actually scientific explanations alone are are not enough because we have this heart response and and he has a very uh, there's a depth of of response that we hear coming through in in the way that Stephen Fry responds to the question. And, Mm. you know, he refers to this kind of, why are there worms that burrow into the eyes of children? Why is there bone cancer in children? You know, scientifically, well, the worm is not trying to inflict blindness on the child. It's simply doing what its DNA tells it to, which is to eat whatever material it happens to find itself in. But there's nothing right or wrong about it. But we see it and we make a moral judgment and say that's not right and that's why we we need to keep asking well why is that where does that come from because cause and effect and chance and probability are not enough to make sense of 
our heart response to suffering and to natural evil, which is to say this is absolutely wrong and something needs to be done about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Fry's response is, a, is uh, it really illustrates that very well. Thank you, Sharon. We have 10 chapters in the book. Um, and uh, looking at, they all look at 10 situations which you discuss. Um, what was the hardest chapter to write, Sharon? I, I saw that question and I was trying to really think about it. I mean, if I'm allowed to slightly cop out and say they were all hard to write. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> but one thing that I think I took away from the book that I wasn't realized expecting mm. to take away in quite the way that I did was the people that share their stories. Um, I always knew that they were the, the true heroes of the book um, because they they talk about journeying with God through extraordinary tragedy and still coming out believing that God is good, that he is loving, that he um, has somehow is somehow working for good in this world. And yet there, there are these awful things that happen. Um, but what I hadn't quite appreciated is, is how hard it is for them to talk about their experiences and and how difficult it can be back home making that transition and how very few people ask them what it's like to be on the front line of a natural disaster. And yet many have needed significant counselling and help to process their experiences. And so it just really made me appreciate the work of the humanitarian aid workers that are out there in Turkey and Syria right now that are first on the scene, that are the last to leave long after the media have departed. They are the real heroes of the book and um, they are the ones that help us to see that on the ground, in the gritty reality of life, God is still at work. He is still good and he can bring people through incredible tragedy. Sharon, as you write these kind of books, I guess you have a, a premise in your head that you're working through. Did that become adjusted as you went? Did you change your mind about anything particularly? I'm, tr- I'm trying to think, but I, I don't think I changed my mind, but I think that I grew in my appreciation of the complexity of it. What I What I knew all along is that we are not going to be able to bottom out this subject. We're not going to be able to dot the T's and cross the I's and feel like we've got it all sorted. How could we possibly do that in the kind of world that we live in when quarter of a million people died in the 2004 tsunami and, you know, hundreds of thousands have, have died over the, the years in, in disasters that have nothing to do with them. Um, and so we are not able to have tidy kind of complete answers to this question what we ultimately are led to is a person just like we see in the book of Job and and Job himself experienced all the different kinds of suffering he experienced um, moral evil at the hands of the raiders that uh, raided his farm and and killed some of his livestock and and so on. He experienced natural evil. There was a storm that came through and and destroyed uh, the house that his children were having dinner in and killed all of them. And he himself experienced disease and sickness. He, He suffered tremendously. His body was covered with sores and boils and so on. And, you know, what we see in, in this story, which chronologically is the oldest of all of the books of the Bible, actually. It's the very first one. 
and the oldest book, um, that he is not even, he isn't given reasons for his suffering. We, the reader, are given reasons um, that, that there is evil in the world and that evil has an effect on so many levels. Um, but he himself is not. He is given a person. He is invited into a relationship with a person. And ultimately, that's where the book stops on this topic, where, where answers run out and reach their limit. We are offered the person of Jesus Christ who knows what it is to suffer, whose own um, death and resurrection were accompanied by natural disasters, both his death and his resurrection had an earthquake accompanied. For many people, they're having conversations with people who maybe ask these questions. And obviously they can urge people to to do dig in and read the book. But have you got any thoughts from an apologetics angle in terms of how you start to answer it without it sounding uh, yeah. like you've got the answers? And, I, and that's what I loved about your answer there is that it would seem that some non-believers hear Christians who almost try to defend everything and it's all okay and don't don't talk about the mystery mm. and and therefore they come across as a bit ingenuine and people who are not believers think well these christians are, are just a bit crackers really because they're not really gay <laughs> they don't seem to live in the world it's just oh god's god's got it all sorted <laughs> kind of thing and i just wonder whether you've got any advice if someone asks someone in the street chatting oh isn't it awful you're a christian aren't you what do you make of it yeah, I think that uh, it's a really important question. I think that, first of all, we need to be um, very good at listening and being compassionate and acknowledging the seriousness of the question and the wrongness of the suffering um, and not gloss over it because the, the Bible doesn't gloss over it. The psalmists don't gloss over it. Jesus didn't gloss over it. And and so, you know, I think to to kind of... To, to really engage with the person, to, to listen to what they're saying, and then actually to learn to ask good questions back. The important thing is to have a dialogue, not a monologue, um, to have a conversation with the person. And that means listening and asking them, well, why, why do you say that? Um, what, what, what has kind of brought this to the surface for you what, what how does what's happening in this country on the news resonate with you what is it that it connects you to and to really kind of get to know where the person is coming from and why they're asking their question and that helps us in a number for a number of reasons it helps us to get to know them better it helps us to understand what's underneath and behind their original question. And it also gives us time to think about what we might want to say, because sometimes their question might not be intellectual or philosophical. It might be actually something much more kind of um, emotional or heart, heart related. And we need to have an ability to navigate that and respond sometimes in a philosophical way, sometimes in a, in a kind of more compassionate way, and sometimes both, <laughs> depending. And, and so we need to learn the tools and the skills of listening, of asking, and of straddling the kind of heart and head ways in which we might respond. And, and just finally, Sharon, uh, books that you found useful as you were doing your research for this? Yeah, I so uh, lots of books. Um, Robert White 
who was to blame. A lot of his work really inspired me as I uh, was thinking about this topic. Um, David Pawson, Why Does God Allow Natural Disasters? Erwin Lutzer, An Act of God. Um, Christopher Southgate, The Groaning of Creation. Uh, Michael Murray, Nature, Red in Tooth and Claw. Um, John Lennox, Where is God in a Coronavirus World? Um, I'm sure there are many others as well, but and a number of papers and articles as well that, that were very, very helpful to me. Well, Sharon, you've you've been wonderful in terms of your explanation of this very, very difficult topic. And uh, obviously we're urging people to read your book uh, as a way of people thinking through, because uh, you're dealing with the, the detail of some of the disasters and diseases that have been faced. So thank you so much for being on the Leadership Show this week. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. That was my conversation with Sarah Dirichs who has worked with the Oxford Centre for Apologetics and is a freelance speaker and writer and author of Broken Planet, If There's a God, Then Why Are There Natural Disasters and Diseases? It's published by IVP. Her surname is spelt D-I-R-C-K-X. We're only able, of course, to touch on just some of the big issues surrounding natural disasters and disease. So do get a copy of her book and think through this further. It's a subject that affects us all as we seek to share our faith intelligently. This is Andy Peck thanking you for your company. And may you have opportunities to see God at work in and through what you do. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.